It is Wednesday, September 20th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, a new program across Arkansas to help reduce opioid overdoses. I like to say, you know, we're not prescribing the naloxone for um, risky patients. It's for risky medications. So we, we really need to just know that this medication is something that can be harmful to anyone. Plus, a new musical collaboration from the Black Legacy Project. At this time, I'm also listening to songs like A Change Gonna Come, Strange Fruit, these songs that still ring true as if they were written yesterday. And the value of a single parent scholarship. I wanted to be able to give my children the opportunity to not be discriminated. First, the hour's news. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Annie Leibovitz at Work. This exhibition includes the photographer's iconic pictures from Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and Vogue, as well as new portraits made just for Crystal Bridges. Annie Leibovitz at Work opens September 16th. More at crystalbridges.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, a new record gathers new songs and new takes on older ones. The Black Legacy Project is an album of 12 songs recorded by a diverse set of musicians in studios across the country, including in northwest Arkansas. That, plus Raven Cook, celebrates the life of Paul Revere Williams in a new edition of Reflections in Black. And how beer can turn into help for area nonprofits, it's all ahead. First today, the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences was recently awarded a $1 million grant to create a statewide naloxone training program designed to train and educate health care providers on how to use the drug to prevent opioid overdoses. Naloxone is a drug that reverses the effects of an opioid overdose. In 2021, there were 386 opioid overdose deaths in Arkansas, accounting for more than 60% of all drug-related overdose deaths in the state. That's according to KFF, a health policy research center. Dr. Megan Breckling is the lead on this training program. She's a pharmacist and assistant professor at UAMS, and she's also a clinical research pharmacist with the Center for Addiction Services and Treatment in the UAMS Psychiatric Research Institute. She says that over the last few years, her passion has grown over opioid recovery and healthcare provider education. And I've just seen it's a really common challenge everyone is facing, you know, and it's not it's all different populations that are having trouble with opioid use and misuse. And and I feel that the availability of a life saving medication out there is necessary for everyone to be able to have access to and the ability to use it if needed. So it kind of triggered me to, to see this grant when it popped up. And I was like, you know, this would be a great thing. Um for Arkansas because we're struggling with it very much. So here, just decided to to go for it. You know, I was really excited about it and I'm so excited we got it. Um, and I'm excited for the work that we're going to do. I, I think there's there's kind of some misconceptions or there's, there's kind of some assumptions that are made around the kinds of people who um, struggle with opioid abuse or opioid uh, addictions or those sorts of things. It's not a very specific group of people, right? I think one of the things that may be 
a bit misleading is that opioid addiction and abuse happens to a full range of individuals, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and I've seen, you know, the whole gamut of everyone. Uh, I work with incarcerated patients that have struggled with substance use. Um, I also work with chronic pain patients that, you know, they got started on opioids for a disease that they've been struggling with. And so, I mean, it's it's many people in Arkansas, in the nation, in the world that are struggling with this. As someone who's not a pharmacist, can you explain to me what naloxone does and how it kind of counteracts uh, an overdose? Yeah. So naloxone is a reversal agent. Um, so it is reversing the effects of what opioids do to our brain and our system. Um, so when someone goes into an overdose, They've had too much of an opioid into their their system, and it's basically shut down their their ability to breathe. Um, and we know at that point that's a very dangerous situation to be in. Um, so giving naloxone is very rapid; it reverses that effect. Um, however, it's not a a long term effect, so it's something that keeps someone alive for a short period of time. But knowing it's very important to be calling nine one one, you know, so somebody is coming with more uh, ability to keep that person alive. Um, so it's kind of that short uh, term solution to keep someone alive, similar to what we would do with CPR or, you know, an EpiPen and a severe allergy. So it's very important to know how to use it. It's also um, not difficult to use. So it's not something that somebody needs advanced medical training for. Um, it's very much so could be used by anyone, even, you know, a younger child could use it, um, especially the nasal spray. So that's why, you know, I feel like training anyone and everyone about it and, and helping spread the word about it, because you just never know when you might encounter a situation when it's needed. Is there any sort of concern uh, if, say, some of naloxone, you know, got on my hands or got on me and I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, experiencing any sort of overdose at that moment? Is anything going to happen to the person using it? Anyone uh, administering it, I mean? So it's very, it's a safe medication in that way that it only works in the way that it's designed to go up the nose. Um, and it's also not going to affect someone that is not having an opioid overdose. So if you come across somebody or you yourself get it on you um, and you're not having that overdose um, problem happening, it's not going to cause you to have a side effect or a, a harmful reaction to you. So that's why I always tell people, even if you're unsure of what is going on with the person in front of you, it's better to give them this life-saving medication and hopefully save their life, and you're not going to cause harm to them. The program is is geared towards healthcare providers. Are you hearing from a whole range of healthcare providers, too, who were just like, I never thought I would need to use this until I had this one client or I had this one group of people come in, and you know, it makes you realize like how wide of a problem it really is. It was an overwhelming response when I started reaching out to some of the people I've worked with on other projects, just because I think, like you said, it's affecting everyone out there, all of Arkansas, rural Arkansas, um, all the healthcare providers. Um, and I think we also should kind of touch on, you know, the the possible drug interactions that can happen when someone's taking an opioid, even if you're taking it correctly. Um, if you take it on top of, you know, another medication or you drink some alcohol with it, you know, you could have that adverse effect of a respiratory depression and overdose. Um, so it's not just the people that are misusing opioids. It's the fact that the opioid is a medication that can cause um, this side effect, um, this respiratory depression. Um, so I like to say, you know, we're not 
prescribing the naloxone for um, risky patients, it's for risky medications. So we, we really need to just know that this medication is something that can be harmful to anyone. Uh, you mentioned the the element of Arkansas having plenty of rural spaces. I think that's a really important element of this too, right? Is that there are plenty of, of places in Arkansas where they don't have quick and easy access to a hospital, to an emergency room. And so working alongside smaller rural healthcare providers uh, can be a pretty big a pretty big impact too, right? If someone is let's say in Stone County, a pretty rural county in Arkansas and they don't have quick and easy access to a hospital, but you know, these healthcare providers who work on a smaller scale know how to use this and can do it effectively and help save someone's life. I mean, that's that's the ball game. Yes, for sure. And I mean, it it just gives you more time to get that person to where they need to be to really get the help that they need. What is something that uh, excites you about the opportunity to to lead and to administer this sort of education and training program? You know, I think it it's really that, you know, potentially I could help save some lives out there. Um, I think that's a big thing for me. Um, and then also just making families um, and, and Arkansans feel safer. I think it's very scary when we start hearing about all the fentanyl that's out there, um, you know, kids that are getting a hold of it. Um, if we can train parents and schools and um, anyone out there, you know, we could potentially save lives. And I just feel like if this medication is available and, and able to be had, and we need to know about it. So that's kind of what excites me the most. As part of this grant money, will a portion of this go towards procuring and getting access to naloxone as well? Yes. Yep. So we've budgeted and uh, money to be able to provide free naloxone kits for the participants that are coming to the classes. So to learn about the naloxone and how to administer it. So we will give them free naloxone. Um, we will also provide resources on how to get free uh, replacement kits. So if, if they use it and they need a kit, um, we, there's a lot of great organizations in Arkansas that are partnering with us on the grant um, that will help us get those those uh, replacement kits if needed. Um, it's also, you know, a lot of news going around about over-the-counter naloxone. So that is coming as well. Um, so I think this grant hit at a, a perfect time because eventually it will be over-the-counter. Um, and we want people to be able to know how to use it if they do end up buying it. Um, and I think this will kind of be a great start to that. Dr. Megan Breckling is a pharmacist and an assistant professor at UAMS. We spoke over Zoom last week. Hi, it's Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that radio is a medium that allows for multitasking while you're getting up in the morning, while you're getting dressed, getting showered, making breakfast, getting off to work or to school or getting kids where they need to be. We are with you, informing you of the world. Jumpstart your day with Morning Edition from NPR News. Morning Edition, tomorrow and every weekday morning from 5 to 9 on 91.3 KUAF with your local host, Daniel Carruth. You can also listen by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. In about seven minutes on today's Ozarks at Large, the Black Legacy Project, 12 songs, originals and covers recorded by musicians from across the country, inspired by a tumultuous time. We conceptualized the Black Legacy Project in 2020 when Todd and I were seeing the reports of Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd being killed on our news feeds, and the level of 
polarization that we saw growing. Musicians in Los Angeles, the Mississippi Delta, upstate New York, and the Arkansas Ozarks contributed their time and talent. The record is released Friday. We'll learn more about it just ahead on today's show. Do you need to get rid of your old car? Why not donate it to KUAF? It could provide hundreds of dollars of support to your favorite programs. All you have to do is call 855-500-RIDE and schedule a pickup. It will be towed, sold, and you will get a receipt for your taxes. Find more information on the membership support page at KUAF.com. Northwest Arkansas National Airport's board members voted unanimously to detach from Highfield yesterday. The decision comes following a new state law allowing XNA to detach without being annexed into another city. Our partners talk business and politics spoke to Jim Crawl, chair of the XNA board of directors, who said they tried to reach out and work with the city of Highfield. The airport attempted to negotiate with the city over the allocation of sales tax revenue, but eventually couldn't come to agreeable terms. Around $600,000 of Heifel's annual sales tax revenue was attributed to XNA. The unemployment rate in Arkansas rose ever so slightly in August, just a tenth of a percent. The move was from 2.6% to 2.7% from July to August. The rate is still lower than August of 2022, however, when the unemployment rate was 3.4%. Talk Business and Politics spoke with Michael Paco, an economist at the University of Arkansas Little Rock, and he says future revisions to the August jobs report may show that the job numbers have not been as robust as originally reported. The national jobless rate is 3.8%. The first ever art exhibition hosted by Arkansas Children's is open to the public today on the Northwest Arkansas campus in Springdale. Curated by the organization Beyond the Diagnosis, the portraits of 40 children with rare diseases are created by dozens of professional artists. One of the works included in the exhibition is of Matthew, a 14-year-old Northwest Arkansas resident born with several rare genetic diseases. His mother, Reagan Sheets, says his portrait on display at Children's Northwest continues a relationship between the family and children's. Um, He was born in Arkansas, so pretty much since the beginning, um, he has been a part of Arkansas Children's, so mostly in Little Rock, and then once this hospital opened up in Springdale. A lot of his care is here, but still we go back to Little Rock um, maybe once or twice a year. Matthew's portrait was created by Diana Sharon, who works with galleries in both Bentonville and North Little Rock. Her portrait features Matthew against a backdrop of colorful tricycle wheels, setting a playful tone. Because the video that I watched of Matthew and the video here, he is playful. He is full of joy, and he likes doing things and being part of things, and that's what I wanted the painting to speak to. Matthew's mother says the organizing nonprofit Beyond the Diagnosis does important work, including the traveling exhibition of art. It's more of a person. It's a you know these are kids, and I think that what we get. From, I mean, I'm just now looking at all these, but what we get is just a perspective of just a, a pure human life that deserves love. The Beyond the Diagnosis exhibition is open to the public beginning today and will be available to the public through September 29th from 8 until 8 each day. Entry to the exhibition can be made through the Arkansas Children's Northwest main entrance and a public ID is required to access the exhibit. We'll have more about Beyond the Diagnosis exhibit on weekend Ozarks at Large Sunday morning at 9 o'clock.
This is Ozarks at Large. This week, Music in Common will release the record The Black Legacy Project, Volume 1. It's 12 songs, originals and covers, focused on bridge building, solidarity, and the black American experience. The co-directors of the Black Legacy Project, Trey Carlisle and Todd Mack, sought out diverse communities of musicians and diverse songs for those musicians to record. Sessions took place in the Mississippi Delta, western Massachusetts, Denver, Boise, Atlanta, Los Angeles, and the Arkansas Ozarks. The sessions here yielded a cover of Jimmy Driftwood's What is the Color of the Soul of a Man and Sundown Town, a song co-written by Ry Cooter and his son Joachim. We recently talked about the project with Trey Carlisle and Todd Mack. Trey says the project, which includes not just a record, but a tour, was a few years in the making. We conceptualized the Black Legacy Project in 2020 when Todd and I were seeing the reports of Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd being killed on our news feeds, and the level of polarization that we saw growing um, around race relations and the experience of uh, anti-Black racism in the U.S. And during this time, Todd is listening to all of these Bob Dylan songs. And he's moved by, one, you know, how relevant these songs still are today, but two, the act of solidarity that um, Bob Dylan was showing, this, you know, white boy from rural Minnesota creating songs, bringing light to the injustice that black Americans were facing during that time. And um, and Todd was moved by that solidarity. And at this time, I'm also listening to songs like A Change Gonna Come, Strange Fruit, these songs that still ring true as if they were written yesterday. So from that, Todd and I were inspired to explore how could we use what we do as a music and peace building organization, you bringing people together and using music as a tool to help folks find their common ground how could we use these songs throughout history that speak to the Black American experience and the experience of race relations to bring folks together in dialogue around race relations in the U.S.? And from that, um, inspire folks to explore what we can do to advance greater solidarity, equity, and belonging. And that was the inspiration for what became the Black Legacy Project. It. It's fitting. You mentioned what you were seeing in your newsfeed. It's fitting then, I guess, that American Skin, 41 Shots by Bruce Springsteen is the first song, because that is about uh, a black man gunned down by police mm-hmm. officers in New York City. Mm-hmm. Amadou Diallo. Yeah. How did the two of you or the team come up with what songs might be included on this volume one? Well, it was really important for us that the songs had a direct connection to the theme that we had selected for the local community that we were in. Um, And then the theme itself had a direct connection to the community that we were in. So American Skin, Bruce Springsteen's song, um, was reimagined by artists when we were in Los Angeles in Southern California. And uh, the theme was the same name as the song American Skin and was really examining how the color of one's skin impacts their lived experience in this country. And we looked at examples that were specific to Southern California, the way Hollywood historically has portrayed Black people, for example, uh, in, in negative light. 
Um, and uh, American Skin, although I think people most often associate Bruce Springsteen with New Jersey, he lived most of his adult life in L.A. and wrote that song while he was living there, raising his kids with his with his wife. And so that's sort of the pattern that we took for all 24 of the songs that are on the well, there's 12 on his first album. There'll be a, a second album down the road. Um, but this idea of what's a theme in this local community um, that's got a direct connect to the community. Uh, around race relations and what are songs that support that theme that also have a direct connect to the local community. Trey Carlisle Todd has already mentioned Los Angeles, but there is uh, Western Massachusetts, there's Atlanta, there's the Delta, Denver, Boise, Idaho, and of course, right here where I am, the Arkansas Ozarks. How did you find um, the musicians or the places or either? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, we have an amazing team, an amazing um, marketing and development coordinator who is able to just do some really powerful multidisciplinary research using, you know, social media and social media, online research, as well as partnering and connecting with local organizations and community leaders in the community that have direct ties to local musicians. And through taking that multidisciplinary approach, we're able to identify you know, the local artists that we would like to bring in. And then we have one-on-one Zoom calls with them and conversations to talk with them more about the project. But when it came to selecting the actual seven communities that we launched the project in, Todd and I really wanted these seven to really be like a snapshot of the United States and show the diverse experience of living in the country. So we launched the project in predominantly black communities, like Mississippi Delta and Atlanta, Georgia, predominantly white communities like Boise, Idaho and the Berkshires, and a mix of big cities, small towns, places that have a very well-known black history and places where you wouldn't even think black people live there, uh, no doubt had this rich history. Um, and it was from that, that's what inspired the seven communities we launched. I have to admit, I had forgotten a bit about the Jimmy Driftwood song the first release, um, you know, this was this is a song that's 50 years plus old. Jimmy Driftwood's best known for a song that Johnny Horton, of all people, took to the top of the charts in the 50s. Do either of you remember how this song got landed and then is turned into this amazing version that we hear on the record? My grandma said When there ain't no use, I cannot tell you the reason why. But I'll keep asking till I die. Tell me, tell me if you can. What is the color soul of a man? So I have the pleasure of being able to put on the artistic curation hat for the project. So I get to do the fun job of like researching a lot of these songs um, that tie into these communities that we connect to. So when I was researching, you know, the musical history of the Ozarks, 
region, of course, Jimmy Driftwood comes up and learn about his history and his work, not just as a artist, but also as an educator and in many ways an activist. Um, and then learning about his album, Voice of the People, which came out in the 60s and seeing this song, What is the Color of the Soul of a Man? That, that definitely caught my eye. And um, so through Todd and I looking at the song, checking out the lyrics, we were like, this could be a very, this is a, a powerful, you know, inquiry, even for the time around, um, you know, the practice of racism and dehumanizing folks and othering folks just for the color of their skin. So we were like, what would it happen if, you know, we have this song reimagined for the project, but specifically we had black artists lend their voice around how they would reimagine this song because to that point, the only folks that we have seen cover that song have been white folks. And it's been traditionally in the same folk genre that Jimmy Driftwood wrote it in. I got one question, so tell me, tell me if you can, if you can. What is the color of the soul of a man? So we were like, what would it be like to have black artists take these lyrics and e express lyrically but also musically the same message and what does that message mean to them um and the the music the uh the amazing co-directors um were able to create uh willie rollerson jr michael fields jr um it, it was just i feel it was, it was amazing todd there's we've mentioned covers by uh, Ry Coot, from songs written by Bry Cooter and Bruce Springsteen, originally performed by Leon Bridges and the Jimmy Driftwood, but there are originals too. How does that mix work? Yeah, sort of the whole process here is that we we work in um, integrated groups and affinity groups, which is a very common practice when you're doing conflict transformation work, peace building work. And what the affinity groups allow for is for, in this case, we're working in racial affinity groups where white artists will work amongst themselves, black artists will work amongst themselves, uh, and then come together. Uh, in Each of them are tasked with reimagining one of these songs that Trey and I have selected. Um, but then they're tasked with, with sort of taking what they've taken from those songs and writing something together uh, as an integrated group of black and white musicians. Um, and so it's a little bit of like a call and response kind of model. And, uh, um, and but the idea with the originals is, well, you know, you've, you've taken a song that you've been assigned to reimagine that sort of supports this theme. And now we want you to look at, well, how do you take everything that you've just expressed in your reimagining of this song, everything that you may have learned during the course of your week in this residency working with us, and, and put it into a song that offers the listener not only sort of a bird's eye view into it and into the issues around it, but how you make actionable steps forward.
there are other elements involved with this as well, right? Uh, the second album, so this will be the first 12 of 24 songs on volume one, which comes out on September 22nd. It will be available in uh, all streaming platforms, Target, Barnes and Noble, like wherever you find CDs for those who still do that. Um, but in addition, there are some other, yeah, there are some other exciting things happening um, in each of the seven communities that the project launched in with these week long residencies, we filmed everything and are producing a docu-series about the project. Each community is its own episode. Um, we've got the pilot episode in the can and are now working as quickly as we can on the others. Uh, in addition to that, a touring band will start hitting the road. Um, literally the day the album is dropped will be their first show. Um, this will be an eight piece band that will travel the country um, performing the 24 songs from the project and bringing the music and the message of the project to audiences uh, nationwide. There are a couple of very familiar songs on here, Lift Every Voice and Sing, We Shall Overcome, that are songs of perseverance. I don't know if you'd say perhaps optimism, but but songs of, of moving forward. But Trey, you mentioned um, Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit when you were thinking, and you mentioned it's still relevant. And I think we all think that will be an important song for as long as people can hear it. But maybe we don't always want it to be a relevant song, if you know what I mean. And I and I wonder, mm -hmm. you know, if that hits you, that here are some songs that were inspiration that were decades old, and it does sound as if they could be talking about something that happened yesterday. Yeah, 100%, which, which is why... <laughs> Uh, we are the Black Legacy Project and not Black History Project because, you know, these themes, these topics, these stories, these um, horrors, um, but also these triumphs and examples of solidarity that have happened throughout um, the 400-year legacy of Black and white race relations in this country. They still live and breathe and impact our lived experiences, our policies, um, our cultures, our media today. So, and as a result, you see that reflected in these songs. Um, so the Black LP seeks to be a space where folks can revisit that history and explore its relevance, but not just the, the, the relevance of um, racism and racism's legacy, but also this history of Black and white folks and, and folks of all racial backgrounds, for that matter, working together in solidarity to help build a word that advanced greater equity and belonging. This is a history that also is not very much talked about, but must be, should, must be talked about just as much as talking about the legacy of racism. Because through being able to understand um, the legacy of the dark times in our history, but also how we're influenced by the legacy of those who worked together in solidarity to bring us to where we are today. That can give us the energy and the fuel to carry the torch um, and continue um, building a world where um, everyone belongs and pass on a better world to the next generation. So that hopefully by the time my kids or my grandkids are around, Strange Fruit can be um, meaningful, but not relevant, as you said. 
I would just add that if folks want to learn more about um, the Black Legacy Project and what we do and where we will be, you can follow us um, on Instagram and Facebook. You can follow us at the Black Legacy Project on Instagram and Facebook, um, as well as at Music in Common. And then also follow our websites by those same names um, to be able to learn more about what we're doing and where we're going. Todd, anything And else? I'll just add one thing, uh, which is just to give a shout out to the Ozarks, which was a really fantastic community to do this project in. Um, incredibly welcoming. I mean, we just, we had an amazing, we had amazing partners um, and amazing musicianship and just very invested community members. And that's what makes it work. Todd Mack and Trey Carlisle are with Music in Common and the co-directors for The Black Legacy Project, Volume 1. The record is released Friday, both physically and digitally. You can see a video for the Arkansas Ozark sessions of What is the Color of the Soul of a Man? by looking for it on YouTube. The sessions here included musicians Jaron Marshall Isbell, Willie Rollerson, Michael J. Fields Jr., Anthony Ball, Reggie James, and Hosey Thomas. The accompanying tour for the Black Legacy Project begins Friday in Massachusetts. More information about the record and the tour can be found at theblacklegacyproject.org. Our conversation was recorded via Zoom. Thinking of donating to KUAF and don't know how much to give? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Even if you only listen as you start your day and while cooking dinner, when we tally that time, it can be close to 700 hours a year. That's the length of 350 movies, about 200 football games, and a couple hundred concerts. Those things would cost you thousands of dollars. For all that listening, we have a suggestion. Become a sustaining member and make your first contribution of $10 or more per month. That right there makes KUAF one of the best bargains you'll find. Donate at supportkuaf.com. And thanks. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. All right, craft beer has exploded in the last decade or so in northwest Arkansas, really across the state. Yeah. And those breweries have a history of generosity with helping nonprofits. They certainly do. A new organization, Ale Truism, wants to help further strengthen the bond between nonprofits and local brewers. So Saturday, they're hosting NWA Oktoberfest at The Grove in Lowell. That's going to be from 3 to 9. Be food, live music, and obviously beer. Yes. So I recently talked with Bill Adams, owner of Goat Lab Brewery and The Grove Comedy Club, as well as the director of finance for Altruism, and Dan Klaus, the executive director of Altruism and co-owner of Natural State Beer Company. Bill Adams jokes the entire project began when he was cornered by Dan Klaus. And said, Bill, you uh, you like to give away a, a beer, don't you? I said, absolutely. Uh, but now he said, uh, we, we were talking about some charities at the time. He goes, well, what I've been trying to establish for many years is uh, a nonprofit, a 501c3, uh, established by and for the brewers and the, the charitable community. So to be a liais- liaison between the two. And so I said, tell me more. And next thing you know, we started working together with the uh, uh, getting the paperwork done with the federal government and the state and getting the, the actual business part done. That's where I kind of came in. I you know, have a lot of businesses, and I'm used to doing that. So we got that established pretty fast. KUF is a nonprofit. I know many other nonprofits. And it's amazing. I, I won't name the ones we've worked with because there are so many. But it's amazing how willing they are to say, oh, you need X amount of beer for your fundraiser, 
here. Yeah, exactly that. And it, it it's frustrating, though, at the end of the year or closer to the end of the year when they're saying, well, we're kind of tapped out. We're really trying to focus on getting our bottom line uh, sure. finished for the end of the year. And that's when the nonprofits are the most active as mm-hmm. well. So we're looking at opportunities within altruism to maybe kind of uh, lighten the load on the back end and shift it towards the uh, springtime. So we've got a couple events that we're working on and, and trying to to work out right now. Uh, one will be a springtime fundraiser called the Great Southern Beer Festival, April 27th of 2024. But most importantly, the one that's coming up right now is our Oktoberfest, which uh, was kind of started seven years ago in Bentonville, has migrated around, and then that's actually really, Bill, to correct you, where we where we uh, oh, that's really right. did connect was about three years ago, Natural State Beer Company hosted the the, the first official altruism Oktoberfest, and Bill jumped in, provided stage, uh, lighting, electrical, uh, sound systems, and just Man, he was just, again, generous and uh, with both his time, his efforts, and his equipment. So, But, yeah, um, <laughs> back to September 23rd, Oktoberfest, we've got three live bands uh, going through the, out the evening. Arkansas Razorbacks are away, and so we're going to host a huge tailgating se- uh, section. We've got uh, three, four food trucks um, on site, and then we've got beer flowing, uh, yeah, all, all day. So uh, we've got great sponsorship right now from uh, several, uh, several, several local organizations as well as manufacturers calling on Walmart, and we have two Walmart chairs uh, that have uh, lent their name to it. So gives us some credibility. What do you imagine this turning into? Have you have you been able? I know it's hard work, being a small business owner and trying to get a nonprofit going. You got to be thinking about now. Right. But have you allowed yourselves to think about what could be in the future in a few years or beyond? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I saw the potential of what we could do for the community uh, as soon as we started talking about it two years ago. And uh, it's, it can easily grow into a uh, an organization that can bring in a quarter million to half a million dollars for uh, nonprofits in Northwest Arkansas. Once we, once all the other breweries uh, see the potential here as well, then if they come into the fold, then it will magnify what it is that we can do. Because even in this time time frame of the year, all the other breweries besides us are doing fundraising events as well. Now we collect all those fundraising events together, and guys, and say let's have one huge statewide event or one regional-wide event that would go into Oklahoma and Missouri and bring people here for this huge event, much like what Bikes, Blues, and Barbecue had done. But we make it around uh, the the beer community and entertainment and things of that nature. I I believe that it's limitless what we can can raise for the nonprofits here in Northwest Arkansas. So what, September 23rd, October 5th, what will we experience? What will we walk in and see and be able to sample and yeah. So uh, <laughs> you walk in. Uh, you're gonna first. You'll hear the live music, right? Uh, so it's a it, uh, that will be immersive. Uh, <laughs> and then we will have uh, a large beer tent. So the, the the goal this year is to try to emulate more of what a Munich Oktoberfest would be. You have one large beer tent. That is where you go, rather than multiple tents representing the uh, several breweries. So all the beer will be under one major tent. Um, it's a free admission. So that's we're the only one that I know of right now is free admission yeah, I think in, right. in in in, North, in Northwest Arkansas. So several Oktoberfest festivals going on, but ours is free admission. Um, 
we're not going to be exchanging money in the beer tent, so you got to buy tokens. Uh, everybody will be uh, you know, carded mm-hmm. uh, for AIDS, of course. And, uh, yeah, we would just want people to come in, relax, have a good time. We've got uh, bounce houses for kids, uh, so it's a family event, too. Uh, we, we're not just trying to uh, focus on adults only. Uh, it's, it's a family event. Mom and Dad need to get a beer and have a, have a place for the kids to go. And then we've got the Arkansas game on several TVs uh, out in the perimeter. So bring a lawn chair, uh, throw it out, enjoy beer, good live music. And, yeah, it's just going to be a good time. Dan Klaus and Bill Adams are with Ale Truism and their local brewers. Oktoberfest NWA is Saturday from 3 until 9 at the Grove in Lowell. You can find out more information at aletruism.com. That has a hyphen, ale-truism.com. Our conversation took place in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. This is Reflections in Black, and I'm your host, Raven Cook. Reflections in Black is a segment dedicated to considering the legacy of black Americans in the United States and around the globe. Each episode has been carefully designed to lead you to wonder, encourage you to research, and support you in ways to use new knowledge to make a difference in our world. Our first step starts here and now with the new episode of Reflections in Black. One Sunday morning, I was watching one of my favorite shows, CBS Sunday Morning. I love the segments, particularly about the visual arts. I've learned a great deal from that show, and I would argue that some of the segments have been a catalyst to my continued learning and desire to learn, leading me into my current work in the master's program in art history at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Architecture is a subject that is frequently discussed in the arts and culture section of the show, and it always leads me to wonder, what role does architectural design play in the lives of black people? We as individuals enter and exit space all the time. Some of us, who are a part of dominant culture, often don't even think about the accessibility of space. We don't think about how the way a building is designed can also communicate if someone is welcomed or not. Are the doors accessible? Are there elevators that can be used? Are there accessible bathrooms? Are there spaces for nursing? Are there gender neutral spaces? Many of us, including me for a long time, never thought about these things. But architecture and design is paramount to communicating through space, you belong. People of color have also had questions about architecture and design, and some of us have even answered. Paul Revere Williams was born on February 18, 1894, in Los Angeles, California. His parents moved from Memphis to Los Angeles before Williams was born and would both pass away when Williams was four years old. Separated from his brother and taken in by a family friend, William's adopted mother recognized his gift for learning and decided to support him in pursuing the highest levels of education. From 1913 to 1915, Williams attended the Los Angeles Atelier of the Bowes Art Institute of Design and became a credentialed architect. From 1916 to 1919, Paul R. Williams would continue to pursue his dream of becoming an architect at the University of Southern California, studying architectural engineering. 
He would go on to receive his license in 1921 and open his own firm in 1923, becoming the first African-American member of the American Institute of Architects. Paul Williams would go on to design for Hollywood legends such as Humphrey Bogart, Lucille Ball, Bill Bojangles Robinson, Cary Grant, and Lauren Bacall. His work did not only center around homes, he built hotels, restaurants, showrooms, churches, and schools. However, it is important to note that Williams is creating these spaces in a time where Black America's relationship with space is complicated. In the South, it was just completely oppressive. Paul R. Williams did not shy away from the realities of his lived experience as a Black American, writing in 1937 an essay titled, I Am a Negro. The power of example, he wrote, is strong. A few decades ago, Negroes had no examples within their own race to spur them on. But now, seeing men and women of their own color bettering their conditions so phenomenally, they realize that they can or their children can do as much. Paul R. Williams has given a model to so many in the architectural profession, but there's still work to do. In an NPR article from March 2023 titled, Very Few Architects Are Black, and This Woman Is Pushing to Change That, reporter Vanessa Romo lays out the figure noting that data from the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, there are 121,603 architects in the United States. And of that 121,000, 2,492 are black, and only 566 of those are black women. In the article, the introduction of Pascal Sablon as a black woman who is striving to diversify the architectural industry continues the legacy of Paul R. Williams. How will we do our part to continue building on this incredible work? Perhaps it's speaking out if we see spaces are not inclusive, or learning more about the voices that are striving to combat inequity in space. I've included links to learning more about Paul R. Williams and the fight for black architecture in the show notes. I hope that this will lead you to asking more questions and doing more research. Until next time, peace. This is Ozarks at Large. Applications are being accepted by the Arkansas Single Parent Scholarship Fund for use during the spring semester. Earlier this month, we asked Christy Brown, program manager for ASPSF, about those scholarships. She says they can have several uses to help a single parent continue working toward a degree. A lot of our students are commuter students, and so those funds are used for gas, um, which we all know is is not something that's cheap this right now. And um 
uh, we've heard uh, the ones I, that I've talked to uh, this semester, you know, it's it's groceries, it's, you know, um, expenses with the kids, you know, because kids are always, they're doing stuff, they're playing ball, they're, they have extracurriculars, and um, the, the funds are just, you know, groceries, things like that, just anything extra, um, uh, an extra way that we can support students um, who are pursuing education and to kind of uplift, give them that extra boost they need to succeed. Eve Mora received scholarships from the group when she returned to college as an adult. To earn her bachelor's from Arkansas Tech Ozark, she commuted from Van Buren to Ozark. It helped me with getting new tires, making sure that I kept my car, doing the maintenance, um, any repairs, oil change, um, you know, all of those things. Um, and if I had a little bit left over, it helped with diapers or just um, expenses like that, home expenses. Christy Brown says the relationship between the organization and scholarship recipients is more than money. She says there is mentorship and professional development opportunities as well. I know we've done workshops on um, job interview skills, resume builders, um, and even, you know, not just that, but some personal things like car care clinic. Um, I've got one scheduled um, for this fall for a credit repair workshop. Um, so there's, you know, that financial, the financial counseling type things. Um, and then we're also going to have one. And um, I'm, it has probably been the most requested topic uh, since I've started working here, but uh, mental health. How to how to deal with stress, the stresses of being a single parent and going to school, and um, hopefully we'll get we'll all gain some tips on how to handle stress. Eve Mora says the single parent scholarship she received were more than just supplemental; they were necessary. I don't think I would have made it. Um, they picked me up from my first year um, up until I completed my bachelor's degree, and that's something I was always looking forward to. Just because, you know, if if my car, my tires, um, <laughs> right? I mean, my car for me, um, I've had it for ten years, and it's it's what's you know the the scholarship would help me a lot. Without it, I don't think I would have been able to make it back and forth. Maura's children are now nine and fourteen, and she's working for a nonprofit helping other students make sure they can get a degree. For her, getting her diploma was life changing. It was everything, um, you know, all, all the sacrifices that I made, all, um, sorry, I can't, no, you're going to, you're fine, don't worry about it. Um, I think as a single parent, we have, um, I wanted to be able to give my children the opportunity to not be discriminated. Um, and I feel like sometimes when children come from a single parent home, they don't have the same opportunities as the other children. And Having my education, I knew that I was going to be able to provide a better future for my children. And I think for me, my bachelor's, it, it was um, 
it was a big accomplishment. <laughs> the application process is open through mid-October. Applications for spring semester scholarships can be found at the Arkansas Single Parent Scholarship website, ASPSF.org. We also have a link at OzarksAtLarge.com. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we talk music. Format Festival is returning to Bentonville this weekend, including a diverse selection of Arkansas artists. Honestly, it feels really exciting because there, there is such a big population of Latinos here in, in northwest Arkansas. I'm really glad that we're able to be a part of it. A conversation with two Arkansas artists, plus much more at noon and at 7 p.m. on KUAF Public Radio. KUAF is a community resource that we all share. It's built on facts and engaging reporting. It's built on dialogue that strengthens connections and mutual understanding. It's built to be here for everyone, wherever and whenever they need it. If you care about a free press, approaching the world with curiosity, and communicating with civil discourse, it's time for you to support KUAF. Join thousands of your neighbors in building up this community resource right now when you make a donation at supportkuaf.com. And thanks. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Van Buren, and Barling. Contributors today included Raven Cook, and our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Matthew. Yes. This day in 1977, you know what happened? Not in 1977, I don't. Arthur Fonzarelli donned swim trunks and his trademark leather jacket. Was on vacation in Los Angeles, and he... He jumped the shark, literally. It was this this day in 1977 when that episode of Happy Days, and of course, gave us the phrase... Jump the shark. Right. It was actually DJs uh, sometime later who were having a morning conversation on the air. And they then assigned Jump the Shark, meaning an artistic endeavor that has reached its artistic nadir. Well, there you go. We'll have a brand new show for you tomorrow. You'll be joined by Timothy Dennis. And uh, until then, have a good day. Be well. And uh, we'll see you at noon and 7 tomorrow on KUAF Public Radio. The Fayetteville Public Education Foundation presents the 2023 Hall of Honor Ceremony September 21st at the Fayetteville Public Library. Honorees include Dr. Daniel Stoney Anderson, Mary Frances Kretschmar, and Chatty Cumpy Platt. It celebrates the individuals who are dedicated to preserving the legacy of public education in Fayetteville. F-A-Y-E-D foundation.org for tickets and information.